Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, welcome to the second Sunday of Easter, dear friends. Or as it is sometimes known in a tongue-in-cheek way, Bash the Apostle Sunday. There is certainly much for which we could chide poor St. Thomas. Doing so is easy. For he did not have faith, at least he did not have it that first time when informed of Jesus' appearance among the disciples during Thomas' absence. Now, you and I, of course, we would never, ever doubt what a fellow believer told us about Jesus, right? We would never struggle with the idea of the resurrection. We would never set aside Jesus' own words that the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of evil men and be crucified and after three days rise, right? Certainly not. Why? Our faith is so much stronger than the faith that Thomas had. So which of the two sins should I lambaste you for? The sin of hypocrisy in that you know full well that you have wrestled against the reality of the resurrection on numerous occasions, but just won't admit it. Or the sin of pride for actually thinking that your doubtful ability not to doubt somehow indicates a certain strength of character that originated within you. Take your time to decide. I'll be here all morning. Well, the remedy to either one of those answers is the same. Repent. Believe in the one of whom St. John wrote, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And yes, we've got plenty of sin to keep ourselves occupied with repentance, leaving poor St. Thomas out of it. Although Thomas certainly is an important person in today's Gospel account, he is not the central person, is he? It's Jesus who is there with his fledgling church in that upper room on the occasion of both visits. For Jesus is always there, whether we realize it or not, even whether we believe in Him or not. Our doubts and our fears and even our locked doors do not keep Him away any more than our confidence and our willingness to confess Him make Him any more real or true. The latter things, gifts of God as they are and not achievements of our own souls, simply make His presence more apparent to us and far more comforting. They do not change His faithfulness. So let's leave poor Thomas be and focus on our own situation, shall we? Thomas has shown his faithfulness in his apostolic ministry, something that you and I can only look upon in awe with thanks to God. For there are all sorts of attitudes that people can take toward eternal life. There is a portion of humanity, of course, that rejects the notion entirely, thinking that the here and now is all that there is to our existence. But still, the majority of our fallen race holds to some sort of hope in the hereafter, both for themselves and for those that they care about. 
Everyone likes to think that he or she will somehow be saved. Now, for much of human history, writers and thinkers have speculated on just how people ought to behave toward one another to achieve this. Theories abound, but almost all of them are wrong. And virtually all of them get ignored on account of our fallen and selfish nature. And for all of our pious pontificating, anything apart from what God has revealed to us about how we are to fear, love, and trust in Him above all things and how we are to love our neighbor is to no avail. You see, our actions at the very coarsest level can only fall into two categories. There are things that we do for others, those things which are genuinely right and true, and those things that we do for ourselves. Now wait a minute, you might be thinking, what about those things we do for God? There is no such thing, I tell you. He needs nothing from you. You can do nothing for God. Your doings arise either out of faith or out of selfishness. But either way, they do not make God better off. Only His actions toward you and only your actions done for others in repentance and in sacrifice are of any value at all. Yes, you can try to please God and pump up your spirituality in all sorts of pious ways, through donations, through daily devotions and prayer, through fasting, through refraining from certain worldly pleasures, whatever it might be that you've determined is your good work of choice. And in the end, you'll find yourselves condemned. You see, such thinking is clouded by our desire to contribute something toward our salvation. But this all amounts to nothing. And it would be best if we were to consider them as such, even to repent of them. But you and I, we have a hard time letting such things go. And yet none of our works have any power whatsoever in saving us or in saving anyone else. It was Christ's work alone to crush death, to destroy sin, to burst the gates of hell's prison. No one else was worthy. No one else was capable. No one else could have done battle with Satan and won. Our sins have their source in Adam. And because of his fall into sin, our nature is corrupt through and through. For our sake, though, Christ has shattered death. By his works, done for us and not done by us, we are forgiven, rescued, and renewed. Now, there are plenty of religions out there in the world that will let you try to work out your way to salvation. They'll give you rules about fasting and praying, about good works. And they'll teach you that if you do your best to keep their commandments, it will save you. At least, it might if God wills it. It is very seductive to have a nice, clear checklist, isn't it? It'll delude us into thinking that our goodness and our salvation somehow lies in our own good works. But remember this, not even any of those in the upper room that night, none of the saints of any age, for that matter, achieve their own salvation by their works. Not Peter, not Paul, not John, not Thomas. Not even the Virgin Mary, for all of her faithful submittal to God's will in bearing the Savior, became righteous 
by obedience. No, salvation does not lie within us, no matter how good and just we may think ourselves to be. Salvation can come by no other path than by faith. And how do we come to faith, you may ask? We don't come to faith at all. Faith comes to us, just as Jesus came to the fearful church in the upper room. Our Lord comes to them as He comes to us and says, Peace be with you. Behold my hands and my side. In other words, Jesus says, I am the one who has taken away your sins. I am the one who has redeemed you. And so be at peace. We have all inherited our sins from Adam. They originated from outside of us. And so too our righteousness does not reside within us either. Yes, we might suffer some of the consequences of sin and of other sin, but we have not suffered the punishment for our sins. Christ did all that for us so that He might free us from death and sin by God's work and not by our own works. God is our redemption, writes Isaiah. Christ is our justification, writes Paul. It is Christ's works alone that make us good. Jesus says, I have justified you. I have destroyed your sins. You need only believe that I have done this for you. Yes, our world is full of wickedness, and it stands condemned under God's judgment. And tragically, rather than fleeing from their errors, people per per pervert God's truth, and they deceive themselves into their thinking of their own minds. But for those whom God has chosen, He will arise in us through His Holy Spirit. And this alone means new birth for us. Although we will continue to struggle day by day in this life, when we are alive in Christ, we do not allow this to lead us into despair. Instead, we can say, our Savior lives. He is risen. He has battled and He has destroyed our sin. And what's more, He has destroyed death for us. And in that very confession of Him, our sin is gone. The world is greatly in error when it comes to understanding salvation. The Word of God is so rarely preached in all of its truth and purity, and even less so is it received by unhardened hearts. Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. But thanks be to God. When the devil tries to attack you and tries to put you in doubt and fear as he did to Thomas in that upper room, or to Peter, in the courtyard of the high priest, we have a place to which we can turn. We can take refuge in our faith in Christ Jesus, clinging to Him, our chief cornerstone. And this stymies Satan and keeps us in Christ safe. You recall that later on after His resurrection, the Lord said three times to Simon, Peter, do you love Me? Although this pained Peter greatly, it was necessary for his restoration. It was only after Peter confessed this and returned to faith and reconciliation with God that then Jesus gave him good works to do. Peter, feed my sheep. And how does this happen? How are the sheep of Christ fed? The sheep of Christ are fed by the shepherds of Christ, 
giving them what Jesus, during His temptation, had told the devil is necessary for their nourishment. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Their sheep are fed only by the preaching of the Word of God, only by the preaching of faith, only by receiving the Word with the water, only by receiving the Word with the body and the blood. Yes, our sinful nature rebels against this truth. We don't often like to hear it, and sometimes neither do I. It can be annoying and irritating to us to be reminded of our failings, that we can do nothing for ourselves. But it is so important that we hear it. And it's important that we continue to remind one another of it here within the church. And important also that we be ready and willing to proclaim it to those outside of the church. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet makes it clear that this is among our responsibilities as believers. There we are told, if you forsake your neighbor, see him going astray and do not help him, do not preach to him, I will call you to account for his soul. So we can be as pious and as outwardly righteous as we want to be, but doing so is not a good work if it benefits no one but ourselves. Yes, you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can kneel before a crucifix and you can say a lot of words, and all the time you can be thinking, I'm not sinning. And yet in our hearts we envy our neighbors and the seeming freedom and pleasure that they have, unburdened by any accountability to God. But the paradise in which they seem to dwell is nothing more than the palace of the devil. We don't like to hear this, and certainly they don't either. Nevertheless, it is the truth. When Jesus came to His fearful disciples in that upper room that night, He brought them His precious wounds to show them that it truly was Him risen from the dead. But He also brought them His peace, given in the assurance that we have true reconciliation with the Father, which comes through the forgiveness of our sins. And then Jesus sent them forth with the authority and the responsibility to bring that forgiveness to others. It was right there, that very night, that He gave His church the absolution. The very same authority that the church exercises to this very day. The very same blessing you received again this morning. Therefore, we do not build our confidence upon human law or upon our works but rather upon the promises of God which are made ours through Christ Jesus. By true faith in the One who is the destroyer of sin, we find ourselves both forgiven and growing in Him. Everything that was once bitter is now made sweet. When we are despised and rejected by this world, we need not pay it any heed, for we are united with God. No hardship, no suffering, no tragedy, shall undo the peace that we have with Him. And so now we can continue to pray and to fast and to worship, knowing now that this is not something that we do for God, but something He gives to us as a means of reflection, as a means of focus, as avenues through which His means of grace can reach us. For wherever there is a right and present Christian love and faith, then everything that we do is no longer focused upon ourselves, but rather focused upon being God's servants to others. May we each reflect and remember that we cannot help ourselves, 
that only God provides us our rescue. Our works are utterly useless for our salvation. And so, abandoning them for the sake of Christ, we have the peace of God that Jesus brings us. We are free to perform works that benefit not ourselves, but one another, our neighbors. And chief among those is the work of proclaiming the truth that He suffered and He died for their sins, that He atoned for the transgressions of all people, even for them, and that He has been raised in glory to show us His wounds, wounds that were very real, but a resurrection that is realer still. Christ has been raised for our sakes. Let us also rise to be helpful to those whose faith is lacking or weak, and thus direct our work so that God may be pleased with it. In such a posture, may we both receive and amplify the peace that He has given us. May God grant this to us every day, for Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.